What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Welcome to What London Can Be, the podcast where we navigate our shifting world, shine a light on the issues our city is facing, and explore the innovative Made in London solutions to critical challenges in our community. I'm Diane Silva, Director of Philanthropy at Lenin Community Foundation. Today, I'll be speaking with Tim Tucky, Executive Director of Youth Centre for Change, a residential treatment facility located in London, Ontario, for male youth between 12 and 18 years of age who have demonstrated problematic sexualized behaviours. Let's learn more about Youth Centre for Change, the work they do, and why treating the youth they serve is so critical. Hi, Tim. Uh, welcome to our show. It's good to see you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. Of course. Uh, so I'm just going to jump right in. Would you mind sharing off um, a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do at Youth Center for Change? So I am the executive director for the Youth Center for Change here in London, Ontario. Um, before that, I was a student at Carleton and Western in the 90s. I have a degree in sociology and anthropology, and while I was in school, I was a member of the Canadian Armed Forces. After graduating in 92, I worked in the public sector as a correctional officer for adults and back then what was known as young offenders. And uh, I finished my career in corrections as a probation officer uh, in Elgin County. Since then, I've been uh, in the information technology sector in Canada and the U.S., and uh, yeah, all that before taking the helm at the Youth Center for Change. Wow, quite the career. And so what led you to this role at Youth Center for Change? I was asked to join the board of directors um, by a former friend. Sorry, still a friend. A friend uh, <laughs> back in 2014. Yeah. Um, back then we were known as the Raoul Wallenberg Centers. And so uh, the previous executive director, uh, he was there for 30 years. He did a great job, uh, but he was retiring and we were challenged finding the right sort of replacement. And so I was asked to step in for a short period of time, uh, maybe six months. And five years later, I'm still here. Um, well, how fitting, like given your career path, I think you do bring a lot of uh, the skill sets that were required for this leadership role, for sure. Um, well, so you know, for some, our listeners who are, uh, sorry. pardon me? Some would probably disagree with you. I mean, um, okay. we're not a secure custody facility. And at times when I mentioned that I'm a former corrections officer uh, at the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center here in London, um, they often wonder if I was the right person for the job. And so um, I remind them that I too was a kid in the system. Um, I was raised in what was called the welfare assistance program. Uh, my mother was a single parent. Uh, she had addictions to prescription pain medications. Um, CAS workers were always at our house. And we lived in the Millbank area here in London. Those are those geared to income homes uh, that are in the media from time to time. Life was hard. So I understand some of the challenges that youth in care have today. Wow. That's so... Um big of you to share that with us. So thank you. And I think it actually speaks to the heart that you bring to the organization. So thank you for sharing that. Um, 
So for our listeners who are unfamiliar, which I'm sure there are so many, they're unfamiliar with Youth Center for Change, could you please explain what it is that this organization does? Youth Center for Change, or YCFC as it's known, is a private nonprofit residential treatment center. We're licensed by the Ministry of Children, Community and Social Services, but we're not owned by them. And we treat youth with problematic sexualized behavior or PSB. Okay, and just to dig a little deeper, can you define what problematic sexualized behavior, what this really means? Well, everyone has a sexual behavior. It becomes problematic when it falls outside of given acceptable societal or societal norms. Problematic sexualized behavior or PSB, it's it's defined as developmentally inappropriate or intrusive sexual acts that typically involve coercion or distress. And while adults who sexually abuse children may have a deviant sexual arousal, it's very different for children and youth. PSB in youth, um, it usually takes place for other reasons, such as when a youth feels anxious or angry, they're reacting to, to a traumatic experience, uh, they're overly curious after seeing sexual media, or they seek attention through sexual means. Sometimes they're even trying to imitate what they've seen uh, from others or on the media. and perhaps maybe even when they're trying to calm themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's good that you made that distinction. So what types of youth do you serve? If um, Without shedding you know, too many details, I know there's confidentiality, but can you give high-level examples of the type of kids that you're dealing with? PSB um, and youth is not limited to any group or gender. Um, it can occur at any range. Uh, ages, socioeconomic level, culture, living circumstances. Um, some youth with PSB have parents who are married, some have parents who are divorced, uh, some have, ab have abuse histories, and some have no history of abuse or other trauma. Um, but at YCFC, uh, residents receiving treatment uh, could be on the autism spectrum disorder. They may have a diagnosis of um, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome or suspected diagnosis. They could have oppositional defiance disorder or other emotional trauma from past neglect or abuse. Um, we have youth that are placed at YCFC from all over Canada, but on average, over 50% of our youth currently are Indigenous. Um, only about 5% of youth, though, with PSB require residential treatment. Um, the other 95%, they can be treated in the community, but the ones that uh, that typically come to us uh, because of trauma or other diagnosis, lack of impulse control, these ones require 24-hour supervision to keep themselves and others safe. Okay, interesting. And what is the need for uh, the services that you provide? Can you share some stats around this, just so the listeners can get a better understanding? What like what is the magic here with what it is that you do? I mean, anywhere in the world, stats are going to vary, but uh, typically in North America, about 95% of adolescents and, and adults who sexually offend are male. And um, studies of very young children with sexual behavior problems uh, uh, show that anywhere from 45% to 80% have been victims themselves. Uh, what's really interesting, though, uh, is that 49% of youth diagnosed with FASD 
have engaged in some form of problematic sexualized behavior. And that's staggering. 49% doesn't mean that they will. It means that they have. So, um, so I think it speaks to the importance of this work, right? Um, why should we be investing in these youth? What is the long-term impact when a youth has gone through one of your programs? Well, when I speak to our friends at CPRI, uh, they echo our sentiment that there seems to be an epidemic of PSB or problematic sexualized youth today. Year over year, we're seeing more and more youth with PSB. And if untreated, they can become adults, each of whom could have dozens or even hundreds of victims in their lifetime. Okay. And so you mentioned CPRI. Um, What other partner agencies in the community do you work with? Well, we are members of ATSA. Uh, ATSA is the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers. Um, they're an international and multidisciplinary organization, and they're dedicated to making society safer by preventing sexual abuse. But we wouldn't be where we are today without uh, psychologist Dr. James Worling. He's a fellow with ATSA. Uh, he has worked with children and youth and families since 1988, and he's consulted all over North America. Uh, with with organizations like us that treat youth with problematic sexualized behavior. He's often uh, utilized by other governmental agencies, uh, probation services for youth. Uh, he performs psychosexual risk assessments. And he has, uh, uh, most people use his outdated risk assessment tool called the Eraser. Uh, just in the past four years, he has uh, created a successor to that Um and it is a strengths-based risk assessment tool. And he's trained us on how to use it. He conducts a lot of our uh, psychological assessments for youth coming into care. Um, he's on our website, along with psychiatrist, Dr. Ben Loveday, and he's with the London Family Court Clinic. Um, yeah, I mean, we've got a great team. We've got a bunch of good partners here. It sure sounds like it. So can you explain a little bit more about the treatment model and how it works? And I understand, again, that your model is a residential program, correct? Yes. So so currently we don't have a community-based uh, treatment arm. We are looking into that. But uh, youth uh, come to us uh, either placed by a parent uh, directly who can fund the bed themselves, but oftentimes that's out of uh, their ability to pay. Um, so usually a children's aid society, family and children's services, or complex special needs funding agency, all of which are arms of the Ontario government, um, will fund the bed once the youth is placed with us. Uh, once they're placed with us, and if they've, they have completed any matters that are before the court, Dr. Warling will complete a psychological assessment. That psychological assessment uh, forms the basis for our treatment uh, their individual treatment path, we call the YCFC path. So the youth is then assigned a clinician, and after developing rapport, the recommendations that Dr. Worling puts in place are followed. And we also follow ATSA's best practice guidelines. And this involves a combination of cognitive and dialectical behavior therapy. Um, this helps youth identify their trauma and how it has affected their sexual development and resulting problematic behaviors. We also teach youth laws on consent and the components of healthy relationships in group therapy sessions. Everything we do at YCFC is structured though. Um, meals, 
snacks or at regular routines. Um, uh, we have an on-site school. We have uh, wonderful teachers placed here by the TVDSB, the Thames Valley District School Board. Um, Chris McLeod and Paul Pierce, who are very pro-social men, uh, they've worked in spec ed most of their careers. Uh, but everything is structured. Everything from gaming system time, time um, to media privileges are all earned and they're all supervised. Uh, the youth have no access to media that is unsupervised. And we have a media management team too that um, decides whether a movie or a television show or a game uh, would reignite any harmful thoughts that they may have already um, they may already be coping with. All of this coupled with 24-hour careful supervision are part of our MELU treatment offering, including the private insight-based therapy and group therapy sessions. Okay. Um, yeah, I have a total new appreciation for the, uh, the level of work that goes into this and the amount of work that goes into this. So what are some of the barriers or challenges you face in doing this work in reaching more youth then? Public perception, I would say, would be the biggest uh, barrier or challenge. Um, Dr. Worling has pointed out this, that the science uh, behind treating PSB has really grown up in the past 10 years, but educating the public and professionals is a real challenge. Okay. And are there any challenges you face in terms of program delivery? Can you touch on awareness around that or funding and capacity? Well, treatment is difficult. Uh, the average stay at YCFC can be anywhere from 18 to 36 months or even longer. Really? Like, um, so why so long? Well, it takes time just to develop rapport with the youth before they can even trust their clinician. Uh, some of them have some pretty significant trauma uh, that they need to work through. And that takes time for them to be able to share that. You just can't dive right in and say, tell me how all this started. Uh, forming trust and rapport is a key component. And for some youth, that can take many months or even years, depending upon any cognitive delays that the youth may have. And educating the greater community that uh, problematic sexualized behavior is not easily overturned in a youth with cognitive delays or other types of trauma and diagnosis is a real challenge. They sometimes think, well, is it going to be cured in six months? And, you know, sometimes we have to remind them that this is an organic being with their own challenges. And um, sexual behaviors are very entrenched and very difficult to overturn, um, especially when a youth's maturation is, has been interfered with. Um, some of them can't be returned home. They can never go home, some of them, due, due to the high risk of sexual assaulting their siblings or siblings. Uh, family members or classmates even. And funding administrators with the government have a hard time understanding that a youth will have to remain with us for a long time. And that's just because they don't understand the science behind it. So a considerable amount of time is unfortunately spent trying to secure or maintain funding for youth that have no safe place to go. And this impacts and impedes our service delivery. Um, Sometimes even well-meaning uh, protection or resource workers or complex special needs agencies, they try to, for lack of a better word, armchair quarterback uh, what we're doing here when they have no formal experience in treating the youth with PSB. Now, 
Unfortunately, this is because they're looking at this through the lens of an upfront cost without realizing that if the treatment is successful, this will more than pay off in less hospitalizations and counseling services for the youth down the road or even in future victims. You know, at, at times the amount of bureaucracy that we get or that we experience as a small, very small private nonprofit is not helpful. And it winds up taking away from the scant resources that we have at our disposal currently. So clearly there are challenges that you're facing, um, you know, in your day-to-day with the operations here, uh, with program delivery. Can you um, shed some light around what are these challenges, like um, in terms of funding, capacity, and program delivery? Yeah, sure. I mean... Our per diem rate is set by the Ministry of uh, Children, Community and Social Services. It's, it's, it's part of our annual license um, and uh, we have not had an increase in 15 years. So our rate is set at $303.96 per day. And that might sound like a lot of money, um, but we're only a 12 bed facility. And that, that amount per youth covers round the clock supervision by our frontline staff, the salary of our clinicians, food and housing for the residents, programming, maintenance of our property, which we're always in the process of renovating, plus the group and private counseling. So when you take all that into consideration, $303.96 a day doesn't go very far. In fact, our rate is a third the cost of the average hospital stay in, in, in Ontario. And according to the Bank of Canada's inflation calculator, there has been a 32% increase in goods and services over the last 15 years. But our rate has stayed the same. Um, We're known as as an OPR in the public sector or outside paid resource by the province. So we also have a hard time finding the right sort of person to be part of the great team that we currently have. that's because we can't afford to pay them a competitive wage or salary um, at times. And once we do train them, uh, we need to be able to retain them. And with that in mind, if you don't mind, uh, Diane, I'd like to make a formal invitation to our premier, Doug Ford. Please come down to ICFC and see the important work that uh, we're doing and listen to some of our challenges in serving youth and, and the community. Yeah, no, for sure. You're welcome to do that. In fact, I'm hope that the community feels encouraged to um, to learn more about your organization as well uh, after our podcast here. So how has the internet and social media impacted the issues that you deal with? I'm sure that's had an impact. It, it really has. Um, without uh, being um, overly dramatic, we are seeing alarming trends that are increasing due to sexualized media on the internet. As I mentioned before, our friends at uh, the Child and Parent Resource Institute, CPRI, on the sexual behaviors team, and even our own clinicians, uh, we no longer ask a child if they've been exposed to pornography, but rather how much and what type of pornography have they been exposed to. And although we're licensed to treat youth as young as 12, between the ages of 12 and 18, we are hearing reports of children as young as age four that have had their sexual maturation interfered with by viewing online pornography. And these youth can grow to create or repeat an abuse cycle 
or even become victims of child sex trafficking. Yeah, that is concerning and very alarming. In fact, I have a lot of uh, friends who are teachers and they're seeing kids at a younger age, um, just like what you describe, they're they're hypersexualized already and too young to to grapple with these issues. So um, it's becoming more and more mainstream, right? Yeah, and parents it are too busy. Is. They're 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 working hard. Um, most parents will have a dual income uh, just to afford or to afford the cost of uh, housing today, um, and they're ill prepared because I'm from the generation with when there was no pornography online. It was it was kept uh, behind closed doors. It was on top shelf of uh, variety stores. It was considered taboo. Uh, but now it's unfortunately become normalized and there's no controls around it. So the best line of defense is uh, by parents supervising internet access because it is, quite frankly, a very dangerous place. For sure. And so how has the pandemic exacerbated uh, these issues? Has it changed or shaped the way you deliver services today? Very much so. I mean, our administrative uh, load has increased by about 30%. Um, but the Ontario government was very helpful towards my frontline staff uh, with the temporary wage enhancement program for our frontline and support workers. But the youth have become COVID prisoners. Um, we were already challenged here at YCFC on finding safe place or safe places for external recreation programming. But since the pandemic, I've had to really limit uh, where we can take the boys. And so we have to be, we have to be very creative here on site. And I commend my staff uh, with their creativity in keeping the youth occupied and regulated and busy during the pan or during the pandemic. And we're, we are attempting to add more spaces on property, like a gym, but this too is expensive when you factor in the housing boom and uh, the increased cost of supplies and skilled labor right now. For sure. And so what are your plans for the future? Are there plans for expanding your delivery service with your primary service model based on residential treatment? Do you see the expanding to be able to reach more youth? Um, can you just... What are, what's your what's your dream here? What you could do? I'm glad you asked that. I mean, in London, uh, London uh, Children's Aid Society has expressed a huge interest in our dream to expand into community-based treatment for youth that don't require the residential treatment. Um, there are very few options here in London, and there's a huge need for treatment and counseling services as well as the victims of intrafamilial sexual abuse. Um, and, and we just wouldn't stop at London. I mean, one thing that, um, that COVID has brought to the forefront is video counseling. It's being used more and more often. And uh, YCSC would love uh, to one day offer um, counseling services to persons who can't afford it, to be able to liaise with uh, uh, benefit plan uh, uh, companies, their administrators, to see if we could tap into those resources to give uh, counseling services to um, uh, their their children, their youth uh, victims. Um, when you think of victims, rec reconciliation needs to be done very, very carefully. You just can't thrust siblings back together when there's been interfamilial abuse. And so we'd like to purchase another building 
uh, away from the residential arm that is YCFC um, so that people can come and uh, receive those services or even my staff can work there uh, being removed from that residential arm. Um, as I mentioned, uh, London CAS, they're keenly interested in this expansion uh, and not just for the youth and children, but to provide training and resources for parents. Um, many of those that are struggling with understanding how important it is to supervise their children on the internet, to be cautious around strangers, and the dangers of child sex trafficking. For sure. So I'm sure um, this interview is opening a lot of eyes uh, for people, and uh, it could rally some support, uh, I, which I hope. So for the people that are out there in the community who want to support this type of work, how can they help? Well, they can uh, navigate to our webpage, uh, that is ycfc.ca forward slash donate. Um, they can also send us an email at info at ycfc.ca or donate at ycfc.ca. Or Diane, they can contact you at the London Community Foundation and you can also put them in touch with us. Happy to do that for sure. If I can though, I would like to say a big thank you to the LCF, the London Community Foundation, and its donors for the past support. It has been, I think, just this past year, we've received in the past 30 years the, the most amount of attention from donors. And so we really appreciate that. As well, a big shout out goes to the LDCA, the London District Construction Association, for their pledge to renovate our kitchen, which is over 20 years old. And of course, Dr. Jim Worling for his continued support of our program. Oh, that's nice. No, we're, you know, um, when uh, your program first came on our radar, we thought, hmm, we've got to lean in and learn some more. And uh, it's been an interesting journey. And I'm really grateful that we have this platform with this podcast uh, to share more about your story and highlight the work that you're doing. So the thanks goes to you too, for being so candid with us as well. Um, so finally, I have to ask, what do you think London can be and how can we get there together? I'd like to see London become a leader in understanding. Um, many perpetrators of sexual abuse have cognitive delays, significant trauma as young persons and children, or they've been victims themselves. Um, we have a tendency to judge and vilify and get angry, and at times rightly so. But the best way to get people to change is to become part of the solution based on love. I think uh, London can be the leader in pointing our finger less at others and asking ourselves what we are personally doing to help our neighbor in the community and the world that we all share. Beautifully said. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, thank you so much for your time and uh, for sharing about your program the complexities that you deal with, the, the clients that you serve. Um, I hope that everyone's eyes are more open and feeling more compassionate and understanding and uh, want to be part of the solution. So thank you, Tim, for your time today and the work that you do at Youth Centre for Change. Thank you, Diane. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What London Can Be. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, 
Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn how to subscribe to this podcast and for more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca slash what London can be. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for joining us.